Good evening to all of you. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Neil, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. Incredibly privileged to do so. Our church hosted nine services across three campuses over the past weekend, and therefore Pastor Skip is getting a very well-deserved break from the uh, pulpit this evening. And it's my responsibility to be a good steward of your time as we share in the Word together. Would you please join me in prayer as we begin? Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We ask that as we share in your word tonight, you truly would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray, God, that you would gift us with a disposition of allowing you to examine us as we take this test in Scripture of our love for you and for one another Please grace us to be honest with you and with ourselves. We ask, God, for you to be with us this evening in a very unique and sweet way as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask that you not answer the question out loud, but that you just think about it. The question is this. Do you love me? Do you love me? From one Christian to another, I ask, do you love me? Now, for some, it can feel a little awkward to be asked that question like I just asked you, and perhaps in some of your minds, there's thoughts along the lines of, Neil, I've known you for years. Surely by now you know that I love you. Others might be thinking, well, we are at church, and in the Bible the Scripture says that we're to love everyone, so I guess in that sense, yes, I love you. And perhaps there's others who say, well, I just don't know you well enough yet, so I honestly can't answer that question of whether or not I love you. Now, to be asked that way can feel awkward and can also feel, perhaps, for some, a bit irritating to be asked that question more than once. It's like I'm pressing you, testing your sincerity, if, in fact, your answer is yes. But do you know that if you and I interact long enough, I will be able to tell your real answer to that question. Do you also know that if you and I interact long enough, you also can tell my real answer to that question when you pose it to me, whether or not I love you? And it gets even better. Do you know that our answers to that question of each other will also prove the real answer to the question of whether or not we love God. Which brings us to our passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. You'll want to turn there. 
In that passage, we share in the Word tonight in a time titled, Do You Love Me? As we're going to consider this passage, I want us to look at it as God graciously providing for us a test of the realness of our love. For in this passage, we're provided with a comprehensive exam of our love for God and for others. It's from this passage that we can answer two very important questions. And for the purposes of our study, these two questions must be asked in this order. First, do we love God? And second, do we love one another? Now, God asking us this question, if we love Him, is the first, most important and foundational question we must answer. In fact, I want us to consider these two questions in this way. The answer to this first question, whether or not we love God, provides the answer to the second question. And our answer to the second question proves the answer to the first question. For if we love God we will love others. But we cannot say that we love God if we do not love one another. Some of you are familiar with the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, met with the disciples and he asked the apostle Peter this question three times, back to back to back, in the very same conversation. That conversation is found in John chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Consider also that God is asking each of us that very question right now. Do we love him? You see, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And after each time Jesus posed that question to him, Peter answered that he did indeed love Jesus. And immediately... After his answer, Jesus' very next words were for Peter to then love his, Jesus' people. He said to either feed his sheep or tend his sheep. In other words, care for my sheep, love my sheep. If your answer is true and you truly do love me, Peter, Jesus says, then now turn your attention, pivot, and love my people. Why? Because love for God and love for others are inextricably linked. These two cannot be unraveled or separated from each other. By nature, they coexist. One cannot exist in the affirmative without the other. In fact, the evidence of how much we love God is proven by how much we love others. Now, whether we love each other is important. It's very important. But it's not as important as whether or not we love God. But if we love God, we will love each other. And our passage provides the tests to prove that by how we treat the people in our lives. So, do we love God? 
And do we love one another? Let's take the test and find out. Follow along with me as we read our passage, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In this passage, we're presented with a series of tests on our love for others. The first collection of test questions, if we might look at it that way, have to do with our test of our love for one another inside the church. And as we get near the end of our time together, we'll look at the final three questions which deal with our tests for others, not only those inside the church, but also those outside the church. But again, as we begin, consider that these are presented to us in a way where we're supposed to examine our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I should point out as we get started that usually in a sermon, you'll have a few truths that are unpacked. And then application follows, but this passage is very different in the sense that it's loaded with pithy statements, each presented to us as a test question, as a complete thought with application in and of themselves, not requiring a whole lot of explanation, but it's intended for us to be a test to examine the sincerity, the authenticity of our love. But for the sake of time, because this passage contains so much truth, We will consider each part of the test or the passage, but we'll only be able to dive down deeply on a few. And so let's start. First is our test of loving sincerely. And that comes to us in the first part of verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, there are four kinds of love mentioned in the New Testament. Some of you are familiar with these terms. Eros phileo, storge, and agape. Eros refers to a romantic love, the type of love shared intimately between a husband and a wife. Phileo refers to a friendship love. Storge refers to a 
love of family loyalty. And then finally, we have agape. That's described as a sacrificial and unconditional love. Now, in our English language and American culture, we're deficient in the expressions of this word or the use of this word love. In fact, we can say something along the lines of, we love our family, we love our friends, we love our dog, we love our favorite restaurant. And hopefully, for each one of those statements, there's a different depth of meaning and quality of love that we actually mean or are expressing. But here, where we're told that we're to love without hypocrisy, the Greek word that's used is that beautiful word, agape, to love sacrificially and unconditionally. This kind of love, it's characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights and privileges for the benefit of another. It's also characterized by a commitment to the betterment of another regardless of the emotions involved. In fact, it's the love in Scripture that's most descriptive of God's love for us. That's the type of love that we're to have one for another. And it's qualified in that it's supposed to be without hypocrisy. Now that term hypocrisy or to play the hypocrite comes to us from the Greek theater. It refers to the actors who, as they were portraying various roles and characters that had different expressions or states of being, the way they would do so is to wear a mask. So regardless of what the actor was feeling personally or actually, the mask that they were presenting on stage would convey a certain, a certain emotion or a certain condition. And so when we're told here that this agape love is to be without hypocrisy, it's supposed to be without masks. Now, in some Bible translations, it uses the word sincere or sincerely instead of the word without hypocrisy. Now, that term sincere is also a very beautiful word. It comes to us from the culture of Rome, particularly with regard to Roman stone statuary or artwork or perhaps beautiful pieces of kitchenware, tableware. And the term sincere comes from two words, sin without, and serre, which means wax. So what would happen in that culture is, if an artisan was creating something beautiful made of stone, with the desire to then gift or sell that piece of art, as they were creating that piece of art, if they noticed a flaw, a crack perhaps, or perhaps a piece that breaks off, what they would do to repair that is they would find as much dust as they could collect of that very stone, mix it with wax, and they would fill in the gaps that presented some type of imperfection. Or they would use that wax mixed with the dust in order to attach a broken piece. Now, if that happened, they wouldn't be able to sell it for as much as they would if it was a flawless piece. One of the ways, if you were going to purchase one of these pieces, to tell if it was sincere, without wax, 
is to wait for a warm day and leave it out in the sun. And as the sun became hotter, it would reveal by the melting wax any places where there was an imperfection. So God is telling us here, I want your love to be without wax. I want it to be real. I want it to be complete. I want it to be right. Love for God and love for others must be real. It must be authentic. We might say it must be from the heart. And it's fitting that this is the first quality mentioned. Because if this quality does not exist, if this aspect is not right, then none of the rest can follow. I love what Pastor Kerry Rose uses to describe this passage. He refers to it as the fruits of repentance. And so what we have to consider is the fact that we must first love God sincerely, and from that, it creates the condition where the rest of these attributes, these fruits of repentance, can then grow. They can come to life. So our first test is the test of loving sincerely. The next test is the test of loving by hating what God hates. That second part of verse 9 says we are to abhor what is evil. It might sound oxymoronic that to love correctly involves any type of hatred. But we find in Scripture that to love like God involves hating the right things. It might seem contradictory, but it's not when you consider what it is that we're supposed to hate. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, it's listed six things that God hates, yea, seven, it says, that are an abomination to him. So Scripture tells us what it is that God hates, and Scripture tells us that God hates sin. That word abhor is a strong word. We don't use it much at all, perhaps, in our current day and age, but it carries with it the idea of not just hatred, but rather a repulsion. When it comes to evil, we're to be repulsed by and have a strong dislike for it. Why? Because God himself hates evil. Why does he hate evil? Because it's the opposite of who he is and what he is. Now, this can be difficult for us because while we are now God's children, while alive on this earth, we still have a sin nature. That is, we have within us a bent or predisposition towards sin or towards evil. Add to that the problem that sin presents to us in that sin is often the path of least resistance and it's often the most efficient means to a cheap and high euphoria. But know this, every euphoria that comes from sin is always temporary. Not only is it always temporary, it always comes with some form of pain and suffering in the end. Now there's two ways when Christians allow evil to be too close to us. The first of which is when we're entertained by evil. The second of which is when we entertain evil. Now, when we're entertained by evil, 
That's descriptive of when we treat evil as a spectator sport. In other words, we're not on the field or the court participating in the sin. We're just watching it from a distance. So therefore, we think to ourselves, I watch it, but I would never do it. So because we're only watching it and not doing it, we think we might be okay. Then there's also when we entertain evil. Now this happens inside our hearts and minds. It happens when we fantasize about inflicting pain on others or perhaps possessions that we covet. We might even imagine adulteries we would commit or other sins in our minds. The list can be long. But like the other, we tell ourselves, I think it, but I would never commit it. If that's the case, Christian, be very careful. Every action begins with a thought. In fact, it is physiologically impossible to commit any action without, being, without it being initiated by our brain. Now, for some people, the action appears so instinctive, whether good or bad, because of how much they've actually thought about it or, in many cases, have already been doing it. So with that in mind, consider the wisdom of Ralph Waldo Emerson when he wrote, Sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Be very careful with what you entertain visually and what you entertain in your heart and mind. It was the writer of Proverb 23, verse 7, who said, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whatever is going on on the inside eventually is going to be made manifest outwardly. So as a man is on the inside, eventually that's what he'll be seen as or she will be seen as on the outside. And I find it interesting that in the very first part of this chapter, Romans chapter 12, and it should also be noted that when you examine the book of Romans as a whole, the first 11 chapters deal with heavy doses of doctrine, whereas the remainder of the book, beginning in verse, or chapter 12, we're presented with a lot of application that's built upon the foundation of that doctrine of the first 11 chapters. And so with that in mind, consider that in the second verse of this chapter, chapter 12, Paul writes to us as Christians, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Or as is often noted, the idea is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You say, okay, I got it, but how do we go about that? The verse continues, rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that by your life's actions you may demonstrate that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that happens by renewing your mind. So, godly love hates evil. 
to the point that we're no longer entertained by it, nor do we entertain it, much less doing it. In fact, our posture toward evil is that we avoid exposing ourselves to it altogether. Friend, don't violate your conscience. You see, there's going to be times where God lays upon you a certain expectation, perhaps even a certain standard, and it might be specific to you. God has given you a conviction to avoid certain things, and sometimes we get tripped up when we're spending time with other Christians and they're participating in things to an extent that make us feel uncomfortable. That's not necessarily our opportunity to then judge them for what the Scripture would call perhaps an exercise of their liberties. But at the same time, you don't feel at peace about participating in it. It might seem like it's an activity kind of on the edges, maybe watching a certain show, maybe listening to a certain type of music, maybe going to a certain venue. And you think, okay, I'm not, I'm not on the court, I'm not on the field engaging in it, but I'm, I'm too close to it. Don't violate your conscience. Respectfully separate yourself. Avoid even being exposed to something that you don't feel of clear conscience about. You see, the more you violate your conscience, the more prone you are to eventually falling into sin. At the same time, at every point at which that's the case, you don't necessarily make your conviction equal to God's commandment. You just have to be humbly aware of what it is that God has established for you in the way of parameters or fences in order to guard your heart and mind. Brings us to the next test, the test of loving instinctively. Instinctively. It's the third part of verse 9. Cling to what is good. Question. Do you cling to what is good as closely as you cling to your mobile phone? Just yesterday, I was with a friend. He asked me a question, the answer to which was on my phone. And in that moment, I realized I didn't have my phone on me. And I did what we all probably do to some extent. You begin to feel every pocket. And then it's followed by a feeling of anxiety. I don't have my phone. Now, there's some in our present day that are actually postulating that we as people have already to some level become cyborgs or transhuman. Might sound a little out there, right? But when you think about the fact that a cyborg is a being that's enhanced by electronics, when you think about something being transhuman, meaning beyond human, and you consider that even in your own personal life, you perform better when you have your phone with you, then when you don't have it, you have more information, more knowledge, more ability that actually conveys with it the idea of being like a cyborg or transhuman. In fact, the device is simply not yet into our physical being, but we're benefiting from it. It's making us better. That's a frightening thought, and that's actually a frightening thought perhaps for a different conversation. But the idea is this. We all understand what it is to be without our phones, right? Because we cling to them so closely. 
There's some people who, if they were to examine their lives, that phone doesn't go anywhere farther than five feet from them 24 hours a day. It's by their bed when they sleep. It's on their person as they walk through life. And perhaps when they're cooking, it's not far away in some other part of the kitchen. The idea for us with regard to this goodness is that we should cling to it. This idea of clinging to it is the idea of joining oneself to something or someone so that it becomes a part of you. The idea of clinging to goodness in this way is that it becomes such a part of you that the outworking of it is increasingly natural and instinctive. So we have to apprehend good, hold on to that which is good, and the longer that we do that, the more that we do that, the more that goodness will flow out of our lives. Which brings us to the next test of loving affectionately. The first part of verse 10, we're told, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. That term brotherly love in the original Greek language is a word that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with. It's the word Philadelphia. That's why we call the city of Philadelphia the city of brotherly love because it literally means brotherly love. In other words, even here at church, with one another, we're to treat one another as if they are family because they are family. And in healthy families, people treat each other with a kind affection despite the other person's limitations, despite the other person's imperfections, and even despite the other person's irritations. That's the kind of love we must have with one another. In fact, this idea is expanded a little bit further in this passage in verse 15 where we're told to do two things. One, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what families, healthy families, do with one another. Do we love one another affectionately? This now leads us to the test of loving impartially. Loving impartially. The second part of verse 10 says that we are to be in honor, giving preference to one another. God expects us to interact with one another in a way that if an opportunity comes that we're all sharing in, perhaps it's time to eat, prefer the other person to eat before you. If there's a limited supply of something that's a blessing to all of us and there's only one left, you step aside and you give it to that other person. You prefer them before yourself. Now, this idea is also expanded upon a little bit later in this same passage in the first part of verse 16 where we're told to be of the same mind toward one another. Now, this act of love, of being of the same mind toward one another, overcomes the sin of partiality, the sin of partiality. To be partial is to play favorites. But God is supremely impartial. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He loves all equally. 
man, woman, child, young, old, rich, poor, healthy, sick, paupers, kings, queens. He loves all the same alike. We're to be like that toward one another in that we give no preference to superficial attributes. Superficial attributes such as social status or class, race, position, attractiveness, wealth, influence. We're not to treat each other differently based on those superficial qualities. Furthermore, in verse 16, it takes this a little bit further. We're told that we are to associate with the humble. In other words, we're to seek out the humble. And the humble here literally means those of a lower status. Go out of your way to recognize them. Go out of your way to be in their presence, to engage with them, to spend time with them. Why? Because that's the heart of God. In fact, it's told to us this way out of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Many of us are familiar with this, this passage. We're told that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. That's what God values. That's what we should value. Are we preferring others better than ourselves? Are we associating with the humble? And are we being of the same mind toward one another? Now we come to a part of the passage where it gives us an additional nine tests. But again, as I mentioned earlier, for the sake of time, we're going to spend very little time just allowing these statements to explain to us how it is we're to be examining our love for one another. We're going to have to do it in rapid-fire succession. The first of which is the test of loving eagerly. The first part of verse 11, we're to not be lagging in diligence. In other words, when it comes to loving one another, you don't shrink back and quit when the moment calls for you expanding your effort, your level of exertion, and your expression of love for one another. We're supposed to rise to the occasion and love others with our best. Do we love eagerly? The next is the test of loving passionately. The next part of verse 11, we're to be fervent in spirit. Another way to say this, we're to be zealous. Zealous to love the Lord and zealous in our love for one another. This brings with it the idea of eager enthusiasm to commit oneself completely to the task of loving others. That word fervent, it's a great word. It literally means boiling point. And I like that idea of boiling point because I think of a pot of water and I think of the purposes for which you would need to boil that water, perhaps to cook something. And so you turn up the heat just enough for it to boil. Not too much to burst out of the pan or evaporate all the water, but just enough. It carries with it the idea of just the right amount of passion. Now, some of us might think back to an earlier time in our life as a Christian, and we compare our zeal 
today with the zeal we might have had a year ago or two years ago or perhaps again when we first became a Christian and we seem to have lost some of that zeal, that fervency. Get it back. Get it back. It's such a great experience to be able to live fervently in Christ, especially when it comes to loving one another. It's one of the things that makes the quality of life on this earth until we get to heaven beautiful and exciting. It's to love passionately. The next test is to love purely. The test of loving purely. And it comes to us in this phrase, in the third part of verse 11, serving the Lord. Now, this addresses the issue of motive. Why are we serving? Why are we loving? Never forget, God is not a means to our ends. When we serve God, when we love God and love others, it's never for show. It's not to meet girls, it's not to meet guys, it's not to make friends, it's not to network so that our business is improved. Now, there can be unintended benefits to serving the Lord, such as making friends. I met my wife while we served at a local nursing home together. That's where we got to know each other. But that wasn't why I would show up there. And I recognized that's also why she was not there either. She was there to serve the Lord. I was there to serve the Lord. And together, we got to know each other. An unintended benefit, but not the motive or the reason. The reason is always to be to serve the Lord. It's to carry the same attitude and example of Jesus himself, where he describes himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where we read, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Literally dying to self, sacrificially, agape love for the benefit of others. Our next test is the test of loving joyfully. Joyfully. First part of verse 12, rejoicing in hope. I love this word rejoicing. To rejoice is to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. It's to be glad as you love one another. It's a beautiful description. Next test, loving confidently. The test of loving confidently. The second part of rejoicing in hope is in hope. What does it mean to be hopeful or in a condition of hope? It's to be in a very forward-looking condition. In fact, Pastor Skip recently described hope as truth that hasn't yet happened and the expectation that it will happen. You see, despite whatever the current conditions or circumstances might be, however unpleasant, however challenging, we have a hope from God that eventually he wins. Everything works out. He brings all things to an ultimate beautiful conclusion. That hope about the future produces joy within us. 
If our love for God and love for others is real, we will be rejoicing in hope. The next test, the test of loving long-sufferingly. Okay, now we're at the moment where I think every Bible teacher gets at some point, and that's the point at which they start to make up words or come up with new words that probably aren't words, but we're trying to make a point, and so we can become guilty of just creating a word. I do not know if long-sufferingly is a word, but this test is the test of loving long-sufferingly. Second part of verse 12, patient in tribulation. Tribulation, like a boar, it's another word we don't use that often in our day-to-day business here in America with our use of the English language. This doesn't come up a lot. But what does it refer to? The idea of experiencing tribulation is likened to be squeezed or pressed. Think of an olive or a grape that is pressed to the point of all of the oil from the olive being expressed out or the juice from the grape being expressed out. You're being crushed. You're being pressed. And we as Christians need to patiently experience this type of pressing. It refers to a Christian suffering the pressures of life, but we do so as a Christian. Now, some of these sufferings are what I might consider normal daily life type of sufferings. For those of you that live in this city, Albuquerque, and drive these streets, if you're like me, every day it produces some level of suffering. (laughs) We have a reputation of having some of the worst drivers, none of you, of course, some of the worst drivers in the entire country. I have opportunity every day as I drive to be patient in that level of tribulation. A lot of us, perhaps uh, more recently than in times past, have experienced tribulation because of the decisions and the actions of politicians or government officials. And their decisions or actions have affected us directly or indirectly in ways which have created a level of tribulation. Whatever the cause, we need to be patient in it. The idea of patience conveys with it the idea that whatever we're experiencing is going on longer than we would ever hope for. But we have to be patient. And there are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who suffer around the world, and some of you even in this room, to some extent in your workplace or in your family, you suffer something much greater than traffic or government decisions. You suffer ostracization. You suffer loneliness. You might even suffer loss, loss of relationship loss of income because of your life as a Christian. In those conditions, we're to do so patiently. Next is the test of loving prayerfully. The third part of verse 12 says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Most of us know this, that if we love God, we'll regularly talk to Him. And you know this to be true in your own life. Those whom you love, you seek them out to talk to much more than those that you might love less. So if we love God, we're going to want to talk to Him regularly. And if we love God and others, we're going to want to talk to God 
regularly on behalf of one another. So, how is our prayer life to God? How much do we pray for others? The test of loving prayerfully. Next is the test of loving benevolently. First part of verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints. When you know of a brother or sister in need, how do you respond? Is your wallet open or is it closed? Next is the test of loving hospitably. Second part of verse 13, we are to be given to hospitality. This means opening up our home, whether it's for a period of time during the day or night or sometimes even overnight if the need fits. This might be to Christians we know well, might even be to Christians that are strangers to us. Is our home open or closed? We're told in Scripture that we're to be hospitable without grumbling, not complaining that you're being inconvenienced by this person being at your house. However, let me say this. In every situation, be prayerful and be discerning. However, if God does say, I want you to open up your home to this person, you want to be hospitable and pass the test of hospitality. Next, we're going to look at this one a little bit closer, is the test of loving your persecutors. Persecutors. Bless those, verse 14, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I find it very interesting that we're still in the portion of this passage that is dealing with us with regard to our love for one another inside the church. You see, most often we consider persecution as coming to us as Christians from those outside the church. But here we're told within the church there's going to be times where you're persecuted. This idea of persecution or experiencing persecution involves us experiencing some level of harassment or oppression at the hands of others inside the church. Very interesting. Peter, when writing to believers, had to say these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Finally, all of you, beloved believers, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this so that you may inherit a blessing. Interesting that in the body of Christ, in the family of God, we could experience evil or reviling and have the temptation to return it in kind. Yes, friend, most of you know this, but for those of you who don't, sometimes sheep bite. If we spend enough time with each other, we're going to experience that we can come in contact with sharp teeth, rough edges, 
and bad days. Everyone has bad days. I've had the privilege of being a part of this church family for 28 years. I've had the privilege of being on the staff of this church for 26 years. I have lots of stories of sheep with sharp teeth, rough edges, and bad days. And if I know you well enough, I'll even share with you my top 10 failures. When I was the one with sharp teeth, rough edges, and bad days, we all have them. When that happens, we're still supposed to pass the test of loving your persecutors by blessing those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The idea of blessing is to pray God's goodness upon that person and then be willing by your actions to be the very answer to that prayer and how you treat them. To curse as a Christian isn't here referring to the use of bad words. It's actually referring to praying to God for God to harm that person, to punish them. And then your own willingness by your actions to be all too ready to be the answer to God's prayer or to your prayer to God, rather, that they suffer harm or punishment. Don't do that. Rather, bless. Next is the test of loving selflessly. Selflessly. Second part of verse 16. Do not set your mind on high things. What is this referring to? It refers to the aspiration that one might have of achieving a higher class or a higher rung on the social structure that produces an arrogant and haughty attitude in the person that believes they are better than the others in the family of God. How many educations are completed? How many careers built? How many gym memberships purchased? How many possessions purchased? All for the purpose of people brothers and sisters within the church seeking to improve their chances of being perceived as superior to their brothers and sisters. Sounds filthy, doesn't it? It happens all the time. In fact, it's very Luciferian. In Isaiah chapter 14, second part of verse 13, we encounter the five I will statements of Lucifer. He says, first, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will, I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, most of us would say, well, I'd never express those sentiments. But for some of us, the temptation is to at least have a little taste of it. Or, as some of you might be familiar with, you can relate to Nacho in the great movie Nacho Libre. Where when it came to wrestling, one of his goals was to simply taste a little bit of the... Taste a little bit of the glory. You just want a little bit of it. Even that, my friend, is to fail the test. Rather, we're to love selflessly. Any desire for even a taste of what it's like to be recognized or adored, might even say worshipped, 
even just a little bit, avoid it. And lastly, in this section of our love for one another is the test of loving humbly, humbly. The fourth part of verse 16, do not be wise in your own opinion. This is an admonition to avoid pride. Spiritual pride can be experienced by us concerning matters of God, the Bible, church, where we walk around like we have all the answers as if we came up with all the answers. We might also have what could be referred to as a secular pride. We might think of ourselves as wise in our own opinion when it comes to matters of health or investments or fitness. Friend, if any of us know anything that's worth knowing, never forget it's because God allowed us to know it. And we have to carry it with a humble heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who makes you differ from one another? Like, why would you think you're better than the other person? And what do you have that you didn't receive? You didn't come up with it. You didn't make any of it. If you have it, it's because God gave it to you. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It came from God. And as we near the end of our time together, we encounter the three tests of our love for God and others and how we treat what these verses refer to as all men. All men. In other words, those inside the church and those outside the church. The first is the test of loving befittingly. Befittingly. Verse 17, the second part, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. When a person behaves properly, we say that their behavior was befitting the occasion or the situation. And this refers to us being in the presence of others, even unbelievers, dare I say perhaps even more so amongst unbelievers, we're to then behave in a way that is consistent with Christ, still demonstrating even to them the very love of Christ. Why? Not for eye service, not for show, not to show them what a good Christian should be, but out of authentic, genuine love. Love that's willing to live consistent with Christ in a way that shows them how God can enable them as well to live like Christ. Paul says it this way to the Ephesian church in chapter 6, verse 6. You do this not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, not to men. You're not just putting on a show. You're demonstrating the life of Christ to them. Next is the test of loving peaceably. Peaceably. Verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I appreciate the qualifier here. If it is possible. What does that imply? That it's not always possible. However, we still have the responsibility and the opportunity that as much as depends on us to pursue peace with another person. We have to do this not being outcome-based, but being love-based. What I mean by that is we can't anticipate that the outcome is going to be negative and therefore think that we're now not obligated to even make the effort. That would be to be outcome-based. In fact, we owe it to the other person, fellow Christian or not. We owe them the respect to make the decision themselves as to how they're going to respond to our efforts to make peace with them. 
when we don't even make the effort, thinking that they're not going to reciprocate, we've stolen from them the opportunity to make their own decision. Love and respect them enough to make their own decision, but also know we're responsible as much as depends on us to make that effort. And finally, the test of loving forgivingly. Forgivingly. First part of verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. And then we bounce over to verses 19 through 21 where we read, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we are the victims, the recipients of evil, we are to put wrath or judgment in the right hands, and that is you leave it in God's hands. Verse 20 is a direct quote out of the Old Testament in Proverbs 25, verse 21 in the first part of 22. In explaining what it means to heap coals of fire upon their head by not repaying them evil for evil, by not avenging yourselves, but rather by feeding them or giving them water if they're in need, John MacArthur writes, quote, This refers to an ancient Egyptian custom in which a person who wanted to show public contrition carried a pan of burning coals on his head. The coals represented the burning pain of his shame and guilt. And when believers lovingly help their enemies, it should bring shame to such people for their hate and animosity. I like how Pastor Skip takes it even further. As he considers in Scripture, this idea of coals represents God's judgment. Not only that, consider the final verse here, that we overcome evil with good. In other words, when you do good to an enemy... The judgment of God can come upon them by neutralizing them as an enemy. In other words, you can actually make a friend from an enemy by loving this way. And isn't that what God did with us? We, according to Scripture, were His enemy, and yet He loved us. Loved us this way, and in doing so, made us His friend. I'm going to close with ten bonus questions. I love these bonus questions because they're all gleaned from our passage and they come to us directly from Pastor Skip. In a treatment of this passage years ago, Pastor Skip closed his message with these 10 questions that I want us to consider now. Question number one, am I honest with people when I'm around them? Do I love people enough to be real with them? Or do I wear a mask to make them think, that I'm better than I really am? Question number two. Do I hate evil that I see around me every day, or do I simply tolerate it or even secretly desire it? Three. How do I view other Christians in church? Do I treat them as my spiritual family, or do I isolate myself from them and criticize them? Four. Where do I stand as to my zeal? Is it less now than a year ago or even two years ago or even when I was first saved? Am I still burning fervently and brightly for the Lord? 
5. What about my patience? Especially in tough times and especially with irritable people. 6. Is my prayer life alive? Or is it like Lazarus needing to be resurrected? Do I enjoy praying? 7. What do I do in response to the needs of others? Am I a generous giver or only a generous receiver? Am I ever aware of others' needs or only of my own needs? Eight, when I am made the brunt of criticism, do I retaliate or do I pray for them? Nine, am I happy to see God bless others around me even when my own needs seem greater than theirs? Or do I become jealous of them? Do I encourage others? And finally, ten. Do I try to impress people with my character or with my knowledge? Does humility best describe my life? Or is it the exception rather than the rule? So, that's our exam. Our test of whether or not we love God and whether or not we love others. I've got to tell you, I've spent many hours over the last few days taking this test. I didn't do as well as I'd hoped. I didn't do as well as I'd hoped. It's revealed to me that there are areas that I need to make some confession to the Lord about. There are areas where I need to repent. And there are areas where I need to turn up the heat to the boiling point on my love for God so that my love for one another, for you as Christians, can be what God expects it to be. If that's you, join me in this prayer. Lord, we thank you that when you bring your conviction to bear upon our hearts and minds, It's always for the purpose of drawing us to you. It is never to push us away from you. And so, God, to the extent that any of us, as your sons and daughters, have felt encouraged in how it is we love you and love others, please, God, give us the grace to maintain those expressions of love for you and for our fellow believers, Lord. And God, for any areas where we admit we have sinned, we are falling short, we ask, God, that you would graciously take us aside, that you would prompt us to confess, that you would give us hearts to repent, that, God, our lives in this this season would look to the future to love you more to love others more. We pray, God, asking that by your Holy Spirit, you would gift us with an intensification of these fruits of repentance, that you might be glorified, that our brothers and sisters might be loved and encouraged and built up, and that as a result of our love for one another, the unbelieving world would take notice and desire to know who we know, and that is you, our great God and Savior. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. 
email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.